I want to welcome up a special, very special couple. I uh, I met uh, Holly in high school. Actually, it, yeah, it was high school. Yeah, I met you in high school. Uh, Holly and Gerardo Sanchez, come on up. And while you're coming up, I'll explain. So I met Holly in high school, and she became part of our youth group um, and uh, was a major part of our youth group for a long time. And she's a real character at that. Uh, well, I took Holly on a mission trip down to Paraguay, and she met Gerardo, a Chilean. Um, I know it's Chilean, but he's a good guy. <laughs> they laughed at that one. I know. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, they met, and they're going to tell you their story and what God's done in their life. So um, let me give you this mic, Holly. And Gerardo, you already have a mic, so it's all yours. Well, just in case, but it, to clear up a little confusion, I'm Holly, and that's and I'm Gerardo. The Chilean. And, yeah. And we've been married for 13 years, and we just want to talk a little bit about our differences and how the Lord has used the dif- these differences to kind of show his glory through our marriage. And I guess the biggest difference is I was born here in the United States, here in California. And I was born in Chile, because I'm a Chilean. That's true. Which, uh, we speak Spanish over there, and you guys speak. And I learned a little bit of Spanish when I was in high school, but really all I knew was, donde esta el baño? Yeah, that was really important. I come from a very... um, Blessed family. They are very close together, very um, united. Is that the word? United. And my parents still married. I I had the blessing to have a very uh, awesome uh, childhood. And you better, but I will have only 10 minutes. So you. All right. Well, I came from a family that was divorced when I was just a year old. And I grew up basically with my grandparents. And I really didn't know the, the love of a father as I was growing up. And so when I came into Hidarla's family, it was a big eye-opener for me to be able to see the way that a father can love his children and how he could love me even though I wasn't in his blood. I always want to marry a Chilean, and she never want to marry an... I didn't want to marry an immigrant or a musician. Yeah. So and he's both. So what we're trying to show is how different we are. And I like mayonnaise, and she doesn't like mayonnaise, Blech. and stuff like that. That uh, they are very, we are so different. And um, and in 2001, yes, 2001, you can go with that one too. In 2001, um, the year before, I had joined the church, and I was blessed to go on a few different mission trips. Well, this time, they invited me to go to Paraguay. And I said, yes, let's go to Paraguay. And as Dave always requires, we do a lot of spiritual preparation before we go. And during one of my quiet times, I just felt like the Lord was on my heart saying, when you go to Paraguay, your life is going to be changed dramatically. And that fear of this dramatic change consumed me so much that I almost picked up the phone and called Dave and told him, I'm not going. But the Lord put some peace in my heart, and he said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And obviously I went. I was there when the team arrived there. I was already for about maybe four or five months before the team got there. 
I was invited to uh, support the ministry, uh, teaching uh, music and uh, training some people over there. And I, I think that was, you guys were in July. I think yeah. somewhere on there. In, in June, I told the pastor that I was done with Paraguay. I could, I, I just didn't like the people, didn't like the culture, and I told him, you put me back in a bus because he didn't want, I had to take the bus for like almost 48 hours, and, and I want to go back to my country. I'm done with this. And he said, you know what, uh, I think that you should stay. There is a team coming over here, and, you know, you may know, uh, meet some new people, you may make contact with uh, people from USA, you don't know what the Lord has for you in the future. And you know, in the meanwhile, why don't you take some English classes? And I'm like, oh, okay, well, if you're going to pay, I take them. Okay, I can, you know, I can hold around for another two months or so. And yeah. so we arrived in July, and the very first memory I have of Gerardo was him making a joke at my expense, making fun of me. And I'm like, this guy, I don't like him. He's mean. That's what Chileans do, though. They make fun of people. I'm sorry. And then one day we were on the work site, and I was talking to a group of people, and Gerardo was kind of there listening in, and uh, one person asked me how old I was, and I told him I was 18. And Gerardo looked at me at that moment like, huh, because he thought I was younger. And when he looked at me, the Lord spoke to me, and I other people have said they, the Lord speaks to me, and maybe you doubt them. But I tell you the truth, that it sounded like somebody was standing right there, and he said, you're going to marry him. And I was like, that's crazy. I'm 18 years old. I have no desire to get married at all. I don't want to have children. I'm just going to stay single. You're crazy. But at that point, I was crazy. No, whoever was telling me was crazy. And at that point, the Lord started changing my heart, and we got to know each other over the mission trip, but not in a dating sense. And by the end of the mission trip, we both knew that the Lord wanted us to be important for each other's lives. I wasn't ready to say marriage yet at that point. So they came back to the U.S., and I went to Brazil for another two or three months. And we kept in touch. I think that that's during the time also the... the 9-11 uh, happened. And no, that was the year after. No, that was the year. That was the year. Because I remember year. driving. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, right. We are different. We have this situation very often. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we keep in touch for uh, about a year. And she decides to go and visit me down in Chile. And people kept making fun of me saying, when you come back, you're going to be married. And I'm like, no, you're crazy. I'm only 19 now. And while we were, I was in Chile, we realized we were going to end up married. And we didn't know if I came back to the U.S., when would we ever be able to see each other again? Because we didn't make a lot of money. And so we decided to get married. And um, I was there for two months. And after the second month, we were married at 19 and 20 years old. And... We were so blessed that there was nobody who was against this. I've heard many people talk about having... <laughs> I've heard of so many other couples who come from different cultures and people say, 
don't do that. You're going to be, you're crazy. They just want to get a green card or whatever. I don't, anybody that really mattered in my life didn't say that. His parents were very supportive and they were, they never looked at us like you guys are too young and crazy. They were right there with us, supporting us. And even though my family was in here in the United States and unable to join me in Chile, they supported me through it. So yeah, so as you know, it was about a year or 10 months or 11 months of uh, online relationship. Because in Chile, we didn't have uh, internet. It was awful. In the house. Yes. So, and the phone cards were so expensive that we only can talk for about five minutes and that was about 10 months that we were like that. And in a year, I, I think it was, yeah, right on exactly right the year, year we got married. And to make it a little short, um, we got married. For her, it was very hard over there because the culture, like she was saying, we like to make fun of people, and she wasn't used to that. And we have another situations like Chileans that are very shocking, uh, cultural uh, shocking to people that may go from here. And so it was very hard for us. We have a lot of situations where, um, okay, I'm going to tell you something, but please don't get it out of Facebook, okay? We, like, we have fights very bad, like, she will lock herself in, in the bathroom. And okay, our house consisted of two doors. We had the front door, and we had a door to the bathroom, and I would lock myself in the bathroom just to get away. Yeah, that happened very often. And uh, she didn't know where to go, and... Because I didn't speak the language very well. Yeah. So, well. Uh, Anyway, the Lord uh, my, got my purpose ready, and we came here, and I, we got an invitation to go work in Virginia, planting a church over there with the same pastor that we were uh, working in Paraguay. And we were there for 10 long years, because we didn't want to be there. Years, yeah. You want to take over the And the Lord, I realized at that time when we were in Virginia that the Lord was using the time I was in Paraguay, or... No, I'm sorry, in Chile and then in Virginia to change me, to break me down like it says that the potter breaks down the, the pot and makes you into a new creation. And the Lord was using those two events to do that with me, and it was a very difficult process. I was a big feminist, and in Chile, they're very, as I say, machista. machista. You know, they want the mother, the wife in the house, and and cooking and cleaning and taking care of your kids. And I'm like, no, the man can do it too. What the heck? And the, and the Lord showed me while I was there, it's so much more than that. It's not about being under someone's thumb and him you know, controlling you. It's about serving the Lord in taking care of your family, in humbling yourself and allowing him to use something so small as cleaning your home, and making sure your kids have food on the table, and using that to glorify him. And it was a very hard lesson for me because I felt like women who stayed home were didn't have a lot of value. And when we went to Virginia, we were far away from my family. We were far from his family. And so when we would have arguments, we didn't have anywhere to run to. We had to look at each other's face every day and deal with each other. 
And uh, there came a time when we were about five years married that it was getting so bad, the fighting, that we considered separating and, you know, really divorcing. And, again, we didn't have anywhere to run to. We had to continue there in the same house because we couldn't afford a hotel and deal with each other. And we realized that the Lord had us there in that place at that time so that we couldn't run away from each other, that we realized that we had to depend on each other, that we, what we had in common, though so many differences, was always him. See, the thing is that we start realizing that we are not always two different people, that we have different backgrounds in common, different cultures, different languages. And when it was come to, let's say, um, uh, discipline our kids, or educate our kids. I want to do it the way that my family did it and the way that we do it in Chile. But what she want to do it the way that she does, you know, you guys do it here. And then we start fighting because our culture starts uh, getting in the way. Yes. And or we, are we going to talk in Spanish or are we going to talk in English? And everything, it was like a mess. It was bad. And um, so we start realizing and that we need somewhere that we can find a common agreement. It wasn't our language, it wasn't our culture, it wasn't our family background, it wasn't our childhood, it wasn't nothing that we can possibly think. The only thing that we found, and, and this is the important part that we would like to share with you, is that the only thing that we have in common was our love for Christ. It was the only thing that we can find, it was Christ. So at the time, we started uh, exercising this, um, that every time that we start having trouble, we cannot take our culture or we cannot take our language or our backgrounds. We, we had to go to the Bible because that's the only thing that we can find that we will agree and that will tell us what to do and how to do it. So the Lord started working in our heart in that sense. And um, things change. It's, it's, it's big. So um, it was hard to be in Virginia, but we saw how the Lord started changing our hearts in all kind of sense. He started taking everything that we learned in the past to make us a couple, the, the couple that he wants us to be. Because he, I mean, after all, you think about it, the only way that we are together is because he put us in our way. She didn't even want to go to Paraguay. I wasn't ready to go back to Chile. And he worked everything so perfectly that uh, we met and we're still together. So, I don't know, you have something else to add? No. And um, so we finished in, in Virginia, uh, planting a church in the lower, we are, very short. We tried to escape from Virginia because we. Many times. Many times. We came here one year, we tried to go to Chile. They had to come back because the Lord wanted us in Virginia. And we were fighting, Lord, we don't want to be here. We want to be in California or in Chile or anywhere but not here. The people in Virginia, no Virginians in here, right? Because if there is one, they are great people over there. No, it's, it's a hard uh, feel over there. It's a very hard place to work. And we didn't like it. We just, we just like to be around people. We like to hang out, go out, you know, stuff like that. And people over there, they are not willing because they are around the government. Everything is about work, etc. But the Lord wants us over there. He, he wants us to uh, support the ministry, work with these people. And, and he, he works hard in our hearts because that wasn't what we want. He worked hard in our will. In our will, yes. So after 10 long years, he allowed us to come over here. And uh, we don't 
we're here, ready for whatever the Lord wants to do. And glad to be sharing my testimony. Yeah. So and thank you for listening. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks so much for, for sharing that with us. You know, um, when I met Gerardo down in Paraguay, Paraguay, uh, I knew he was trouble. <laughs> hey, Gerardo, did you go to work with Luis in Campos in Brazil? Yeah. Oh, I was there right after you. But I got randomly searched on every plane. That's why I left, because I knew you were coming. <laughs> you want to mute his mic? Oh, thanks. You already got it? Okay. So, <laughs> um, I'll tell you, one time my wife and I, when we were early married, we got in a, a, a good fight. And uh, what I did was, I, I was smart about this. I went to her family's house and hung out. And she called over there, and she's like, you can't go to my family. You have to go to your family. I'm like, well, I like your family better right now, so I'm over here. <laughs> anyway. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 4 tonight. <clears throat> Let's just uh, pray, and then we'll get started with this study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, not only that we may know you, but that we may have salvation through you, through him. And, Lord, that uh, we can have this relationship into eternity. Lord, we give you praise for that. and We just ask you to give us understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd apply it now. Convict us, challenge us, change us, Lord. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, been somewhere where you're just overwhelmed by the awesomeness. Uh, I, I tend to go, when I go out hiking or whatever, I like to, to get up on high places. And uh, just recently, last June, when my family, we all went to Zion National Park, we climbed onto this, uh, it was called the Canyon Overlook Trail, real simple, easy trail. Made my wife crazy because of our, our little kids. Uh, we put Lucy in the backpack, so she was kind of trapped. But uh, Claire and Elise were kind of running around. And Claire is, uh, she is uh, like a giraffe on ice skates, that one. I mean, she is just not, she's always kind of tripping and so on. So my wife was going crazy when we finally got to the Canyon Overlook, and it was just an edge and nothing, you know, just straight drop. Uh, so we took our pictures and stuff, and I kind of went over exploring a little bit more. And um, there's something about the edge that you just want to get right up on it and just go, wow. You know, just like as you're looking into the, you know, you don't even want, you're almost afraid someone's going to come up and just kind of startle you. But it's just so awesome feeling because there's a fear about the edge, but there's this awesome, spectacular um view that you have that is just so fulfilling and incredible. And uh, I kind of think about that tonight as we get into heaven. Tonight's the first chapter where we're moving uh, into the future and into the throne room of God and into heaven. And we get our first glimpse here, and it's awesome. So with that said, let's go ahead and start reading it. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. 
and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were as it were, a, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Uh, as we get into this picture of heaven, it's kind of an awesome idea when we think about God's place. You know, um, I heard somebody one time say that... Um, Trying to describe heaven, heaven to us is like trying to tell a four-year-old what's in, in store for him on his honeymoon. It just doesn't work. You just can't picture it totally. Although the Bible shares a lot about heaven, often when we read about heaven, we're just kind of like, what's going on? You know, what is this creature, eyes all around, and, and, and it's a little bit shocking, and we're not really sure. Well, the first thing I want to point out to you is that Although we're talking about heaven and we're talking about the throne of God, this is not our final eternal state, heaven. We know that when we get to the end of Revelation, the Bible tells us that there is a new heavens and new earth. And God's dwelling is with men. So we're going to see a newly created place. But for now, John is called up to heaven. Notice it says, after this, after what? After the letters to the churches. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, and I want to draw your attention to this divine outline for the book. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Remember we said that the first part, those things that you have seen would be Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to the present. Those that are are chapters 2 through 3, the letters to the churches. And those that are to take place start out now at chapter 4. And so at chapter 4, John moves into the things that are to take place and what a view he has. He's called up in the spirit into heaven and he's got this view of the end of the world from the top. It's an incredible view John's going to have. So John moving forward is having this viewpoint from heaven looking down on the earth. And, of course, uh, starting next week in chapter 5 and, and so on, we're going to get into the scroll and the judgments and the bowls and all this stuff that everybody wants to hear about when we get into the book of Revelation. 
But uh, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The door standing open. I just want to draw your attention to that. Interesting that to the letters to the churches, to the church of Philadelphia, uh, Jesus said, behold, I have set before you an open door. And, and obviously we, we talked about how that could be a door of opportunity, an opportunity to share the gospel, an opportunity to minister. But I think it's also a door that is open and available to God's kingdom. And this door is standing open. Of course, it's an invitation for John to come up. It's actually a command. But I think that there's something to be said for us that this door is standing open and we have an opportunity now not only to know God but to serve God. Eventually that door will be shut. That door will be closed. But now is the day of salvation, the Bible tells us. Today is the day, not tomorrow. It's not something you want to put off because we have no idea when that door closes. And, of course, obviously if we don't choose the Lord in this life, that door closes quickly. Notice that it's not St. Peter standing there and all the stupid jokes that come along with that. It, it's just this, sta- this door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, when we talk about heavens, we have obviously our heaven, our atmosphere. We have heavens, the, the, the universe, the stars and all that. And then, of course, we have a third heaven, as Paul refers to it, that place before God, the third heaven. This is what we're talking about. He didn't jump into space. And, you know, it's interesting when we think about space, uh, space is actually... It's almost like scary when you start thinking about these facts about space and how far away things are. You're just like, whoa. Do you know that there's a planet-sized diamond in our universe? It, actually, in our galaxy. Uh, it, it, it's part of the Centaurus uh, constellation, and it's named Lucy. Uh, it's actually BPM 37093, but it, it's a planet-sized diamond that they found is the core of this uh, burnt out star, uh, and they called it Lucy. It's its mass is ten billion trillion trillion carats. Now here's the good news: it's only about fifty light years away. So that's the good news. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when you think about that, then then when you think about this, I don't know if you know this or not, but the sun and our 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 uh, sun actually revolves around travels around the Milky Way galaxy, and it takes 225 million years for our sun to travel around the galaxy one time. It's, it's kind of incredible. The numbers are hard to even fathom. Our, our solar system actually has the biggest mountain that, that uh, as far as we know, and it's on Mars, the Mount Olympus on Mars. Uranus spins on its side with uh, rather than... Uh, on its axis, like the rest of the planet, Uranus actually spins sideways. But when we start to think about the planets and the heavens, we're just like blown away by it. Do you know that a year on Venus is shorter than its day? That's a weird one to think about. A year on Venus is actually shorter than a day on Venus because its rotation is so short on its axis that it actually travels around the sun first before it finishes the full rotation. It's incredible the way this universe works. 
the way it's held together. And, of course, I, I Googled for fun. I Googled how big is the universe. And, obviously, I know that we don't really know this. It's all speculation. But I got between 96 billion light years and 13 billion light years. So it's somewhere in there. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a, a huge range of things. But we're not talking about the stars or the solar system. We're talking about what's beyond that. We're talking about the third heaven, the third heaven where God is enthroned. That's what we're talking about. Well, where is that? Well, the Bible often refers to it as up, but we really don't know because we know it's not something in the physical realm. It's something in the spiritual realm, and it's the third heaven, and that's what John is called up to. But I do know this, that God is an infinite God. That means, and God knows the universe, and it says he holds it all together. Do you Just think for a minute about this God. This God who is, I'm going to get technical for a minute here. This God who is self-existent and exists necessarily. That means that nothing can exist without his existence. And by his existence, everything in all of creation is held together and works. That means God knows the farthest bit of our universe, and even to where we're at. He's got it all in his happening and working and sustains it for you and, and, well, not only for his glory, but also for you and I to even exist here on our small little planet. God knows us, and he's got a plan. And so John is called up to this third heaven And the voice like a trumpet says, come up here and I will show you what must take place. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I just want to stop there for a minute. Now, this is not a rapture verse. It's not a verse that supports the rapture doctrine or teaching. And what is the rapture? The rapture is what we call the translation of the believers, the rapture of the church. It is when the church is caught up comes from that passage in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul tells us that we will not all die, but we'll be caught up. Um, In fact, I think I've got it. Did did I put it up here? Uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. The word rapture comes actually from the word caught up, and originally it comes from the Greek harpazo, and when Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate, he used the word uh, raptura, which means to be caught up, and that's where we get the term rapture from. And so this idea of the rapture is that God has a, will come for his church and, and remove them before the time of great tribulation, because the church is not appointed to wrath, he's appointed to, to uh, salvation. And then this time of great tribulation is going to happen. Now, I just want to point this out. Again, I'm not going to say that chapter 4 tells us that there's a rapture. But from chapter 4 on, we do not see the word ecclesia, which means church or assembly. We don't see it again in Revelation until the very end when we're told to take this letter and give it to the churches. So the, the word church, ecclesia, appears some 20 20 times in Revelation, and it's all in the first part, three chapters, and then once at the very end. So we don't see, we see the church goes missing for the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, I know this is a a, kind of an argument from absence, but we have to consider it. 
John is translated right away into the spirit. There, there's, no, there's no pause there. And I believe that this is exactly, of course, if we die before the coming of the Lord, I think this is what's going to happen. Jesus says that even though he dies, he will live when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And I think at that moment of death, you're up in heaven with the Lord if you know him. Just boom, really fast. There's no pathway. There was no journey that John had to take. Of course, physically, his body is on Patmos, but his spirit is caught right up to heaven. And I believe that that's what happens to the believer. Right, right away, the believer is right there before the Lord in heaven. And it's going to be awesome. So John says that he's caught up in this place. At once he was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven. And with one seated on the throne, we're about to get into the, the worst part of human history ever in the book of Revelation. This is the part where everything goes south really bad. This is why the church, we all know that world peace is never going to be an option. Well, it'll be an option for about three and a half years. And then after that three and a half year mark, we're going to see judgment starting to be poured out. By the end of the tribulation, at the coming of the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus appears back on the Mount of Olive, we're going to have two-thirds to 80% of the earth dead. It's huge. And in fact, the Bible tells us that if those days weren't cut short, every, there wouldn't be a single human alive left. So this great tribulation period that is coming, this great turmoil, but notice who is on the throne? God. It's interesting when we start to think about our world and the problems of our world and, and everything that's going wrong in our world and politics and, oh, man, you know, thanks, Obama. You know how everybody does that. Uh, or whatever your political uh, leaning is, it's easy to look at things or, or to say, man, you know, in my day, our, our kids had more respect for teachers or authorities or in my day it was this and my day it was that. And we start recognizing that this world is just going terrible. But notice, God is still on the throne. And for the Christian, for the one who's kingdom-minded, that's all that matters. It's the same thing Isaiah was told. And Isaiah, when Isaiah is called, and he says, In the year King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for a long time. And it was in that year of turmoil that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Man, you know, no matter how bad the turmoil gets, knowing that God is on the throne, that sovereign, our sovereign God, the one who fights for me, the one who loves me, the one who knows my name, the one who I have the ability to approach and pray and, and beseech and seek, that God is sovereignly on his throne. And we can take a lot of uh, a lot of comfort in that, no matter how bad things get. Now, as we look at this throne, the one who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had, appear, uh, had the appearance of emerald. I just want to talk about these these jewels for a minute. Uh, jasper, jasper, uh, obviously, uh, jasper is kind of an opaque stone that kind of can be different colors. Some scholars actually think that this could be diamonds. We're not really sure. But here's what we know. It's going to be magnificent. I think there's kind of a little bit more application to this. It's interesting that carnelian uh, is also a, a stone called uh, Sardis, which was mined in the, land, the city of Sardis, around the city of Sardis. 
And that stone is the first stone in the chest plate, the breast piece of the, the Levites. If you remember back in Exodus, and maybe you don't remember, in the book of Exodus when the Levites are, when they're building the tabernacle and God is giving them the instructions for the Levitical priesthood and how they're to conduct offerings and what they're to wear, uh, they, they're told to make this breastplate. And the breastplate was like a, a small little square thing, and it had 12 stones in it for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the first one is that uh, Carnelian or Sardis, the last one is the jasper when you read the text. And uh, so I, I, I really think that as, as John sees this, it's saying the beginning and the end. This is God, I mean, in all of his beauty and all of his glory, looking like these stones, the rainbow of emerald around him, the beginning and the end is sitting there on his throne. And notice around that throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed with white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. Let me just take a moment and talk about these elders. These elders, we, we don't really know. There's nowhere else in Scripture that says, you 24 people are going to sit next to God. So there's nothing like that. And there's been a lot of speculation. Some think that it's 12 from representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 representing the 12 apostles. So there's speculation that way. I, I tend to think that this is really those from the church because we, we don't see that uh, Israel is rewarded yet until the very end of Revelation. That's where we see that. And with my view, I, I think it's, it's one of those things that the church is already there. They've received their crowns, and they're, they're there at the side of God. Um, so I, we'll see. We don't really know for sure. But what I do want to say is I want to draw your attention to their crowns. The, the word for crown here is not the crown of a sovereign. The word for crown is the crown of a victor, one who is won in the games or conquered, not one who is ruling, but one as a conqueror. And I think it's so awesome because we're told in Scripture that we'll be, receive that crown of life, that crown of victory, and that's what we're running this race for. And so here we see these elders seated next to the throne, and from the throne there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven torches uh, of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Wow. Like, can you imagine what the, you know, have you ever been out in a thunderstorm when it's loud? We were up in the Sierras last July with the youth group, and a thunderstorm had rolled in. And it just the echo of the thunder as it, it would peel off, and, and you'd hear it just echo through the rock canyons of the Sierras. And it was just so loud. And just the sound of it sounded like power. It, it, and, and it was almost like, you're like, oh, cool, it's a really cool thunderstorm. But every time that crack happens, you're like, wow, that's like almost got a little scary in a way. It's so loud and so powerful. And I can imagine John up there in heaven, this sea of glass and these stone, the, the, the brilliance of God on his throne, the elders and these peals of thunder and lightning and the sounds that are coming. He's just got to be blown away by what he's seen as he stands before the Lord. And then, of course, the seven torches. This is obviously a revealing of the Holy Spirit. Notice the Holy Spirit. Jesus, uh, remember when Jesus is baptized, what, how was the Holy Spirit revealed at his baptism? By a dove, right? The dove descended upon Christ. Then, of course, in, in, uh, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given to the church, how was he revealed? By tongues of fire. Remember coming across here, 
the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is by these seven torches representing the, the complete nature of God. And we, we referenced Isaiah 7 before on that. So the Holy Spirit is there. The Father is there, and of course the Son is there. The Son first says, come up here, but later we'll see the Son receive the scroll next week. Before the, the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. These creatures are quite unique creatures, very incredible creatures. And when it comes to these creatures, first of all, we get this idea that they're full of eyes in front and in back and all around. Um, now, whether these creatures really have eyes like this or this is a representation of God's omniscience and his omnipotence, we don't know. But we do know that we see these angelic beings show up other places. And what's most interesting, I think, about this passage is the word here for creature is not the same as the word for um, creature later on used in Revelation when it talks about the creature coming, creature coming out of the sea. Here, literally the word is translated living one, living ones. And later on throughout Revelation when it's speaking about these angelic beings, the word is really living ones, the, the living ones before the throne. So we, we know that there's cherubim and seraphim throughout Scripture, and, and uh, the Bible gives us a couple pictures of this. Of course, in Isaiah, we, we have the picture as Isaiah sees the, the throne and the seraphs, and seraph, by the way, means uh, burning one. Uh, as the seraphim fly around the throne, they have six wings, just like these, these angelic beings here in Revelation, but, but they, they don't have the unique faces. And in Ezekiel, we see these cherubim flying around the throne with four wings, but they have, each have four faces. So what exactly these beings are, we don't know. But here's what I do know. They're, they're angelic beings. And uh, w w they probably represent, they, they probably reflect God's character and his being with the eyes all around. Uh, it's very possible that the face of the man, you know, I've read lots of things on this. Some represent, uh, the, you know, the face of the man stands for wisdom and God's omniscience. The ox is his strength and patience. And, and the, you know, anyway, they go into these illustrations but guys, there's nowhere in Scripture that we get that from. So I don't want to. I don't want to tell you that. Here's what I want to say: is these creatures, these heavenly beings, John sees them, and he's like, "Whoa, <laughs> that is a trip, right?" <laughs> these <laughs> angelic beings, and I think it's kind of cool to know that. First of all, these angelic beings are up there ministering before God. They're serving God, and there's a passage in First Peter that says. Um, it's speaking about our salvation, and it says even the angels long to look into this. And it's speaking about how God saves us and loves us. And, and I think about that. You have these angelic beings who are ministering before the Lord, ministering before his throne. Uh, you know, Ezekiel has the whole image of these angelic beings lifting the throne of God and moving it. Really incredible. But they see the holiness of God. They see the power of God. They reflect his nature and his being. And they see his love for you and me. It's something that, and that's how Peter says they long to look into these things. Because when you see God, when, when you understand who God is and his character and his nature, you have to ask yourself, 
Why is God so patient and long-suffering with us? Why does he endure with our sinful nature? Why does he allow us to, to be so disrespectful, to with one mouth, you know, curse God, the other mouth say, okay, I'm going to praise you now. Why does God endure with us that way? It's just simply because of his love and his mercy. It's wonderful attributes of God. And so these angelic beings are flying around the throne, covering their feet, full of eyes within and without, night and day. Notice they never seem to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do you notice here in this passage and in other passages that speak about the angelic beings before God, it doesn't say, and God commands them to praise. No. They're doing what comes naturally to them by being in the presence of God. They come into God's presence, and what do they do? They respond with praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They recognize God. They recognize His power. They don't have to ask the question, why is God worthy of praise? They automatically know it, and they respond as such. It's, it's not something that has to be taught. It's not something they have to be told to do. God is worshipped not because he commands it, but because he, he, he's owed it. That it's something that belongs to him because he is God. When he asks the question, why should I worship God? Because he's God. And when you start to learn about the character of God, the being of God, it should, you, should, you yourself should respond in praise, which is what we see these elders do. Every time they give glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, look at what the 24 elders do. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before his throne. <laughs> they take this victor crown and they say, it's yours. It's yours. It all belongs to you. They recognize that, God, you have done this and you deserve this praise. You deserve this worship. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy. That's where we get our, our word worship from, we believe. Uh, it's talking about worth-ship. Uh, the old English word. That he is worthy of our worship. He's worth it. He has the value in himself. And so we in turn respond to him in praise. You know, people worship a lot of different things. Some worship money. Some worship uh, a person. You know, Maybe they worship power, whatever it is. They worship a lot of things. But let me tell you, there is only one thing in all the universe that is worthy of worship, and that is God, the creator of it all. And that's one of the things that the 24 elders bring up. They say, you're worthy to receive this, receive glory and honor and power because for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It is simply by your will that everything exists, even me. It is by your will that I can throw my crown before you and say, worthy are you. Have you ever thought about the fact that God does not need our worship? Often that's one of the areas that the atheist gets tripped up on. They say, well, why would I worship a God that demands me to worship him? No, you don't understand. It's not like that. God doesn't demand anything. He doesn't need to. He's God. He doesn't, he's not lacking anything 
from you not worshiping. He's not missing out on anything from you not worshiping. In fact, when we look at eternity past, before God ever created anything, we don't see God lacking. We don't see him alone or bored or wishing he had somebody to hang out with. What we see is the triune God in perfect trinity, in perfect unity, in perfect fellowship. If he's perfect, he doesn't lack a thing. So this God from eternity past who starts to create and creates everything and says it is good. And then the creation starts to turn back and say, well, you know, I, I want to do this. Who are you to tell me what to do, God? Who are you? Who are you? Why are you worthy of worship? It's amazing how mixed up we got it. And we start to, in our depravity, make ourselves God and, or build God in our own image when he alone is the worthy one. Because everything exists. And even with the breath that we say, Who are, why should I worship you? That breath is by God himself. What a merciful God. I think uh, tonight if we can, if I can challenge you in one thing, and um, I'm running out of time here. If I can challenge you with one thing tonight as we look at this throne and we see the worship of it. This is what our eternity holds for us. To worship before God, to worship Him. And I hope that you're learning how to worship God more and more. And, you know, Sunday when you come in church, worship is great. I love the worship. I love what Nick and the team are doing. And, um, and I love how they, they, they come up here to worship. And they, they're like, hey, guys, if you want to worship, we're here. <laughs> we're going to start worshiping. You're welcome to join in. I love that. I love their hearts in that. And, and worship is good. Um, but I know that the worship in heaven is going to be even better because there we are before God in all of his glory, seeing him as he is, just trying to behold him, thinking about him, and we'll have all eternity to continue discovering about this infinite God, this creator of all things who loves us. And, and we're going to continue breaking out in worship, and there will be worship sessions. And I've heard people say, you know, I don't really like the singing part so much, or I don't like the worship part so much. And I would encourage you, start learning how to worship God. Start learning how to put the, the worship on Him and take it off yourself. Start learning how to say, God, you are the most important one, not me. And when we start to do that, when we come into worship, it actually makes our worship time so much more better. Because we're there and we're just like, wow, God, you are amazing. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've saved me. As Holly and Gerardo talked about tonight, look at how you saved our marriage, God. Look at what you have done in our lives, how you've transformed us. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Last thing I want to tell you about is that our time is, our days are numbered. We only have so much time to serve the Lord until that time is over. We only have so much time to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, your Lord. It's, we only have so much time. There will be a time in which faith is no longer needed and hope is no longer there. But only love remains. There will be a time when you can't be persecuted for the Lord or you can't go share the gospel with somebody, or you can't serve your Lord in some way. Now is that time. So I want to encourage you, as we're getting ready to jump into chapter 5 and we start seeing the end of this, I want to encourage you to think about your time this week, every morning when you pray, Lord, how do I use my time today for you? 
how can I give it to you? Because you are worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, you are awesome. Lord, when you called from the burning bush and said, tell them, Moses, I am has sent you. I remember learning that in Sunday school and just marveling and thinking, oh, God's name is I am. But as I learned your name, Lord, I started realizing I don't even understand it totally. Uh, you are God. And we thank you, Lord, for being our God. We thank you for caring about me and everyone in this room, Lord. That today is that day of salvation, Lord. You've given it to us. So we just pray now, Lord, as we worship you, that the focus is on you, Lord. The focus is not on us or our problems, but completely about how great you are sitting on that throne, stable and not threatened by anything. We love you, God. This is your prayer. Amen. Uh, you know, I, as many of you know, I have some pretty heated theological debates with my four-year-old. Uh, it's a regular ongoing thing. And uh, this week, her newest heresy, which I dealt with, uh, was that uh, we were driving and she said, yeah, Daddy, well, um, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And I said, what? And she's like, good people go to heaven. I said, no, honey, good people do not go to heaven. It's people who believe in Jesus. And she's like, no, Daddy, I know this. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And so uh, we argued about this for a while and finally I proved it to her. And so this week she's been talking about the blood of Jesus. But that's one that I want you to think about. God doesn't accept us because of what we can give or what we can do. God accepts us because of what Christ did already. That's why God accepts us. So with what you have now, it can just be an offering of praise to him. So now, go forth this week, live for him. Be holy and set apart. God bless you all. Be blessed.